or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let's ask our blessing, his blessing upon it. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it is living and active. So we pray that you, by the power of your spirit, as your word is proclaimed, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, last week we saw how Paul opened his letter uh, addressing the Corinthians, the church that is that was in crisis. And he began his letter by reminding them, reminding his readers of who they were in Christ Jesus. They were justified they were sanctified, and they were awaiting the day where they would be glorified at the return of Jesus Christ. And although he had many serious issues to address, he had a laundry list of sins that plagued the church. He first and foremost gave thanksgiving. You see that in verse 4, where he thanks God for the grace that was given to, his, uh, given to the church there in Corinth as they heard the word of truth and the testimony of Jesus was confirmed through the power of the Spirit. And he reminded his readers that God would be faithful to continue to give them that grace until the very end, where they would stand guiltless before the throne. And so that's how he started his, uh, his, uh, his uh, letter to the Corinthians, by giving thanks and reminding them of who they were in Christ Jesus. Well, now in verse 10, he gets to the nitty-gritty. He starts addressing... The, 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 the laundry list of sins that were plaguing the church. And the first sin that he addresses here is the sin of division. And so he exhorts his audience. Uh, the translation there, appeal, is maybe a little too light. He's not asking politely. He is commanding as an apostle. He's exhorting them that they all be of the same mind and same spirit as they maintain the unity that should be in the church. He says he heard from Chloe's people that there was quarreling amongst them. Now, Chloe, in all likelihood, was a, a, a woman who was in the church who was rich and powerful, who rich, at least rich enough to have people. I don't know about you, but I don't have people. But uh, this woman, uh, in all likelihood, had business interests in Ephesus, and her servants or employees were uh, in Ephesus at the time so that they could give Paul the report that things were not going well in the church. In fact, there were these uh, divisions and quarrels. Things that tensions had gotten so bad. It wasn't just differences of opinion, but there was outright fighting and hostility within the church. Now, what did this, what were they fighting over? Well, we see what they were fighting over was party loyalty uh, uh, for particular leaders within the church. Paul gives the example there in verse 12. Some of you says, say, I follow Paul. Others were saying, well, I follow Apollos. And then others even others still saying, well, I follow 
Cephas. You see, they were lending their loyalty. They were adopting these Christian leaders and preachers as their own, uh, uh, basically, personality cultures. Now, who were these people? Of course, we know who Paul was, but who was Apollos? Well, Apollos was a Christian Jew from Alexandria, who we read about in Acts chapter 18, who was an eloquent, eloquent speaker. I can't say that for myself. He was an eloquent speaker and gifted through the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that Apollos actually made his way through Corinth after Paul had spent 18 months there. Paul actually encouraged him to go to that region. Cephas, of course, is the Aramaic name for Peter. And so Paul often will refer to Peter by his Aramaic name, Cephas. And whether or not Peter had actually gone through Corinth or not, we have good evidence from chapter 9 that perhaps he and his wife did make a visit through there as he would go on his journeys visiting the churches. Uh, uh, We see that people are claiming Peter as their guy. And then, of course, you have the really spiritual, the ones who were very humble and meek and who say, well, I don't follow after man. I follow after Christ. Christ is my only uh, spiritual leader and role model. You see, these people who were claiming to be uh, followers of Jesus Christ, in essence, were making an exclusive claim that they alone were followers of Jesus. In so doing, they were ignoring the role of the apostles and other ministers of the gospel and also claiming Christ as their exclusive possession. Now, one thing that's important to keep in mind when we see Paul listing these various men, uh, both himself and Apollos and Cephas and Christ, the perceived differences between these Christian ministers and leaders within the church are not doctrinal. That's very important to keep in mind. There's no doctrinal difference in the teaching of Paul and Peter or Apollos or Christ. We know how Paul dealt with difference in doctrine. For example, in Galatians, he says, If anyone preaches any other gospel besides the one that I proclaim to you, let him be accursed. And we see in his other letters when he deals with serious doctrinal issues that he is polemical with them. He debates them and and seeks to maintain the truth. And so here there's no doctrinal difference between Paul, Apollos, and Peter. Ultimately, the difference between these men is personal style, preaching style, or, uh, or their manner of teaching. And I think this is important to keep in mind because of what we know is, was going on in the city of Corinth at the time. This is where it's helpful for us to look at other extant literature and consider the culture and to see how Greek culture and Corinthian culture was influencing the church. We know that by the first century, Corinth had become a hotbed for a a revived group of rhetoricians known as the sophists. These men were professional speakers uh, who really commanded uh, a, a lot of respect and esteem. They were kind of the rock stars of their day. These men dressed in very eloquent, uh, very very fancy clothes. They would uh, engage and debate with each other where they would use their rhetoric and their eloquent speech to impress their audience. Sometimes uh, a a new sophist would come to town and he would challenge others to a debate. And and people would, would, uh, would shout out different topics that they could debate over. 
And if you were really impressive, you could do you can do that on the spot and make a, an argument to defend your uh, to, to defend one side or the other. And so ultimately, it was all about rhetoric, not about substance. These so, the sophists would come to town, they would challenge others, and if they won, they would gain a loyal following, and they would have gained disciples and have a school which they would charge exorbitant rates for. And so they would have these disciples that would dress like them and follow after them and defend their, uh, their, uh, their sophists. And, and then we even have evidence that the disciples would get in fights amongst each other. And so what's going on here? Well, exactly what's happening in the world is now being applied in the church, where these leaders in the church, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, are being uh, named against their own will as, uh, as leaders of party, and they are showing their loyalty to them. Now, Paul will go on to rebuke his audience for taking the ways of the world and applying it to the church. We'll see that in chapter 3, verse 3, where he says, you are acting in a worldly manner. And then we will also see how he will demonstrate how both he and Apollos are merely servants of the Lord, laboring on his behalf. He uses the example of, of, of Paul planting and Apollos watering, but it's the Lord who gives increase. He shows how foolish it is to take sides. After all, they're all on the same team. They're not competitors, but they are co-laborers in the gospel. But it's important to note now how it is that Paul addresses his audience and how he shows how foolish their division is. He now points away from himself and focuses their attention on the person and work of Christ Jesus. Notice that question he asks in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? In other words, can he be portioned out so that certain Christians can claim exclusive possession of him? Is he divided? This is a, uh, this obviously is a rhetorical question where the answer is an emphatic no. Christ is not divided, so neither should his body be. The church should not be divided because its Lord is not divided. This brings up the important topic of church unity, which, of course, is part of the plan of salvation. We all remember the, the, the prayer of our Lord. In John chapter 17, before he goes to the cross, one of his prayers is for his people that they may be one even as we are one. In the same way that the Father and the Son are, are, are share this close communion, he wants the church to be united. And of course, if the Lord prayed that prayer, God's going to answer it. The church will be one. The church will be united because it is one. It is united, but we need to act that way. You see, we do a remarkable job of splitting up the church. I think if you were to poll people today, go out into the streets and ask them, is Christ divided? And if the church were to be, the, at least the visible church, were to be a, a reflection of its Lord, I think most people would say, well, yeah, Christ is divided. I mean, look, you got Protestants, you got Catholics, you got uh, Eastern Orthodox, and then amongst the various Protestant churches, you have thousands of denominations. It looks as if we've done a pretty good job in chopping up the body of Christ. Not to minimize doctrinal distinctions, 
I think it's very unfortunate and, and even ironic that you have churches and, and Christians who call themselves Calvinists or Lutherans or Wesleyans, naming themselves after various men in the church. Now, I understand there are important doctrinal distinctions, and, and we'll, we'll get to that. But it's just highly unfortunate and ironic that we are naming ourselves after men when, in fact, we should bear the name Christian because Christ is the only king and head of his church. And so church unity is part of the, uh, the plan of salvation. It's obviously our Lord's will. He prayed for it. And so how do we fix it? How do we go about maintaining unity within the church? Well, I think there's different ways of going about it. Some are obviously wrong. Take the Roman Catholic Church, for example. The Roman Catholic Church wants to maintain organizational unity by, by requiring allegiance to the head of the, of the church, that is, the pope. You have a hierarchical, hierarchical top-down uh, system where if everyone pledges allegiance to the leader, then you have organizational unity, at least on paper. And the same goes for the Eastern Orthodox churches as well as the Anglican Communion. As long as you pledge allegiance to the leader, you're good. Now, on paper, that sounds good. Of course, anyone who's ever read Roman Catholic authors or who knows the inner workings of the Roman Catholic Church, you understand that they are just as divided as we Protestants are. You may have heard even recently in the news amongst the Eastern Orthodox communions that, they, that there is a, a threat of a major split in that, in that uh, communion where the Russian Orthodox Church is threatening to break away, or perhaps even has already, because the, the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople, Bartholomew I, recognized the Ukrainian church as its own separate body apart from the Russian church. And so here you see that this, this top-down hierarchical organizational structure does not maintain true unity. On the other side, you have what's very popular amongst evangelical churches throughout America, where they want to maintain organizational independence. Every church is separate and can do whatever it wants, but the unity is sought by maintaining a bare minimum, an absolute bare minimum of doctrines or essentials, or as they used to be called, fundamentals. That if you maintain this, this uh, maybe five or six things, then you are part of the club. And the, whole, the reason why they want to find a bare minimum of doctrines to unite around is because the assumption is that doctrine divides. Doctrine divides. Well, guess what? Doctrine does divide. But good doctrine divides in a good way. You see, doctrine divides between truth and error. Doctrine defines those who maintain the truth of the gospel and those who deny it. That's why we said that the difference between Paul and Apollos and Cephas is not doctrinal. Doctrine divides, but in a good way. So rather than asking what is the least, what are the least amount of things that we can affirm for unity, we as confessional Reformed Christians ask what is the most amount of things that we can all agree upon and unite around. And so that's what we have, for example, in our confession and in the catechisms that we affirm as the church, that this is the most amount of things. And, and also a similar document uh, known as the three forms of unity, not division. And so we unite around doctrine. We ask, what are the most amount of things that we find from Scripture so that we can follow after our one Lord 
who is not divided. You see, uh, we confess that Christ is the only king and head of his church. Christ and, and he, and that is the only sound, sound basis for unity. The only sound basis for unity is a like faith and a like practice. As Paul elsewhere will say that there is one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and in all, uh, through all and in all. You see, if we maintain the gospel, we maintain unity. The church is one because Christ is one. We don't make it so. We are therefore to strive towards greater unity, not by watering down the gospel, but by confessing, embracing, and applying it more and more. That's how we have unity in the body of Christ. And then Paul goes on to, to confront his audience who are taking sides, who are dividing the church, by again uh, reminding them that whenever they take Christ out of the center, taking him away, somebody necessarily has to take that place. And that's what was happening with these people as they were claiming, pledging allegiance to Paul or Apollos or whomever. You're putting man in the place of Christ. We lose sight of him who is the only king and head of the church. And the problem is that there is no other savior or mediator. So whenever you take Christ and put him on the side and place a man in in that place, or a mere man in that place, you're removing your savior and mediator. Human nature loves to follow others. We see this in the realm of politics. We see this in the realm of sports or music or whatever you're passionate about. It's our human nature to follow after somebody and to claim exclusive loyalty towards them. And yet, uh, and yet, especially we would like to follow those dynamic and charismatic leaders. And yet all personality cults will result in division and failure. And that's why Paul says, was I crucified for you? Did I give my life for you? Even if he did, would that even benefit you? <laughs> right? Paul was not crucified. Peter was not crucified. Paul wasn't crucified. I wasn't crucified for you. But only Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man. And he goes on to ask this question, was I bat- were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, of course not. We were baptized into the name of the triune God, whereby God put his name on us and claimed us as his own. Our baptisms are a sign and seal of our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. It's interesting that Paul mentions those two things, his crucifixion and our baptism, because they're related. Our baptism is a sign of our burial with Christ so that we might live in newness of life in union with him. And yet Paul says, if you take out Christ and insert the name Paul, it doesn't work, right? So Paul, going on, it's interesting, after he's mentioning the the fact, uh, showing how foolish they are and assuming that Paul could somehow be their leader, he's once again giving thanks to God in verse 14. Now, not, uh, not giving thanks for the grace that was worked in them, but giving thanks that somehow in God's good providence, he actually didn't baptize many people in the church. He says, I thank God. Uh, 
that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Now, Crispus and Gaius, of course, were some of the early converts in the Corinthian congregation. Remember, Crispus was a leader of the synagogue, and he and his household were baptized. And so the Apostle Paul just mentions just a handful of people that he baptized uh, in the church, and he's thankful that he didn't baptize more because he's, he, he worries that some people would say, well, I was baptized by Paul. That makes me special. Now, it's great for us, you know, for whether we have been baptized by somebody that we love and respect as a minister or as a preacher, or perhaps we've had our children baptized by them. That's great. But guess what? That makes no difference in how baptism works. It doesn't matter if you're baptized by the Apostle Paul or by St. Peter himself. It's no difference between being baptized by them or by Joe Schmo preacher, right? Uh, ultimately, the efficacy lies in the Holy Spirit. That's what we confess. Uh, we, we confess that uh, in, in the Westminster Confession, that the efficacy of baptism does not depend upon the piety of him that administers it, but upon the Spirit and promise of God. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul's memory seems to escape him when he talks about how he only baptized Crispus and Gaius. And then, he, and then he, after he say, having said that, he goes, oh yeah, I, and I baptized the household of Stephanus too. If you look at the end of the letter, you'll realize that Stephanus actually was in Ephesus at this time. And perhaps even was in the room as Paul was dictating this letter, and perhaps was there to remind Paul, oh Paul, by the way, you baptized me too. <laughs> me and my family. And so the Apostle Paul has to make a disclaimer. I don't remember how many people I baptized, but I'm glad that it wasn't me. Why did Paul didn't? Why did Paul not baptize many there? Certainly, it's not because he's undermining the significance of the sacrament of baptism. In all likelihood, there, well, there's probably two factors that are going on there. Remember, Paul was there for 18 months in Corinth, planting and watering the church, and yet many had moved on. We know that uh, Aquila and Priscilla moved with Paul to Ephesus. We know that Sosthenes was there and, and Stephanus, and so. Perhaps many, this is a, uh, a culture where a lot of people are moving, perhaps many people who were there originally, that original core group that Paul may have personally baptized, have moved on and no, are no longer living in the city of Corinth. Or perhaps also Paul trusts that, that, that practice of personally baptizing people to others, such as Timothy or Silas, or others within the church who were ordained as, uh, as elders and ministers. And so it's important to keep in mind listeners, as he says in Romans chapter 10, 
How will they believe unless they've heard? And how will they hear the word of Christ unless somebody preaches it to them? So that's why later on in chapter 9, he could say, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's what he is called first and foremost to do, to proclaim that message of salvation of our risen Lord whom we all unite around. Just very briefly, at the very end of our passage, he says that he preaches the gospel and yet not with words of eloquent wisdom. See, here again, I think he has this sophist in mind, those people for whom it was all about rhetoric and not content, merely style. And Paul says, I don't preach the gospel that way. I don't rely upon eloquence or upon rhetoric, but Paul is determined to let the content of the gospel be front and center. Not his delivery style, like the, like the uh, debaters of the age. Otherwise, the message of the cross would be emptied of its power. Paul has a lot more to say about this for the rest of chapter 1 and for all of chapter 2. He'll talk about how the preaching of the gospel, the, the message that, that, that you were saved through the crucifixion of the Messiah, as foolish as that sounds to human ears, is actually the power of God. And so we have a lot to look forward to as Paul is going to unpack how it is that the gospel, the content of the gospel, not the style, the personal style, the delivery of the minister, is ultimately the power of God to salvation. And yet, as we conclude our passage today, we see that the Apostle Paul, in addressing the serious issue of division within the church, he once again directs his reader's attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is king and head of the church, who alone was crucified for us, who unites us to himself in our baptism and then unites us together as the body of Christ. And having, uh, having placed our faith in our Savior, having been baptized into the name of the triune God, he now calls us as, his, as our king to take up our cross and follow after him. And so in conclusion, I'd like to read the words of Philippians chapter 2, which I think have a lot of, of uh, content and impact about how we are to do this. How are we to take up our cross and follow after our Lord in union with each other? Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you.